When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing? If you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to a festive Map Corner. I'm Royfield Brown, who is... 36 degrees north uh, and that's with with some minutes folks uh 10.3 minutes north sorry and uh, 115 degrees and eight minutes west which puts me in las vegas in nevada the city that builds itself as the entertainment capital of the world and it's famous for its mega casino hotels claire they're really big and they're horribly big and this is a weird place <laughs> Um, it's one of the top three destinations in the United States for businesses and conventions. Well, for business conventions, shall we say. And it's a city that's famous for its tolerance of all forms of adult entertainment. So you can call it Las Vegas. Some people call it Sin City. Is that why you're there or are you there for some other more sort of sensible reason? Well, hmm. The truth of the matter is I've been dragged here reluctantly to Sin I suppose. But that voice, folks, was was my Claire, our Claire, everybody's Claire Asprey, <laughs> who is our no-nonsense, mapaholic, sensible person who just makes sure that things get done. Now, Map Corner is a podcast that is dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic. So if Peter's your projection, folks, you're in the right place. What's the theme of today's show, our Claire? Well, we have a bit of a festive theme. And just to celebrate, I have sleigh bells. And uh, and a nice warming glass of ginger wine. So, uh, yeah, it's all right. <laughs> so we're looking at some people's memories of kind of wintry and Christmassy journeys past. But mm-hmm. there's all sorts as well as well, because, you know, people send in all sorts of thoughts and comments and post all sorts of maps in our little map corner community. And we like to uh, cover it all. Don't we just? We like to cover it all. Now, uh, the next bit of my script says, don't forget, folks, to review us on Apple iTunes and we'll give you a roll call in the next episode. I forgot to put the roll call together. However, I can tell you who it is, though. Do you see? Yeah, I don't get a reputation for being organised out of nowhere. Okay, (laughs) so um, 
We asked for uh, new reviews after the back of last month's episode, uh, mm-hmm. and we had um, five star reviews from Mike Pear and also from Manesk. Um, Manesk described this as a great couple of presenters who bounce well off each other. Now that's interesting because uh, you know we're usually in different continents, so it's struggling. It's, it's a struggle to bounce physically off someone at that stage. But there you go. But uh, Mike describes this as witty and charming. He's my favourite person of the day. And we've had some fantastic other reviews from Not At All Bard, Morris Snell, In The Reality, David From The Shed and GWF 2010 and Miss Team 1980 and Reverend Buck. Are you going to pick a winner for Mike Ashworth's book then, Claire? Oh, yeah. So I think uh, I'm going to pick our winner is Mike Pear because um, I like being described as witty and charming. <laughs> So really, this is all about you. Well, you know, it describes us both as witty and charming. So, you know, I'm sharing the love. Well, now I, I suppose you are. I suppose you are. On this week's episode, oh, by the way, congratulations. Well done. What you're going to have to do is email me. So it's just royfield at gmail.com. Super nice and simple. And with, with an address, and we can get the book sent out to you. Well done, sir. Congratulations. In this episode, we've got calls from Mary, Ken, Grey Whiskers and Jan mixture of uh, some old stories of Christmas travels past uh, and some other random Christmas memories and some other random things. So I don't know what order you want to take those in, but we'll work that out later. You know what, I'll, I'll, we'll take that on the fly, shall we? Um, okay. Folks, how this show works is you can call in, give us your questions or your observations about anything which is kind of map or travel related or any kind of geographic observations. And you do that by going on to SpeakPipe, which is located on our website, which is mapcorner.space. It's a funny URL, but it's mapcorner. And then you type the word space. And it's over there on the right. And you can, and it works from your phone, from your laptop, from your tablet, from anything. And quickly just to talk into it and the message gets to us and you'll be on a future show. Now, on this month's festive Map Corner we have an interview with the author of How to Hide an Empire. It's a history of the greater United States. His name is Daniel Imavar. Here is that interview. Daniel, with a name like Imavar, where exactly is that from? Well, from a number of places, but the name is German. And if you speak German, you would know that it means always true. Uh, And that's also not even the most interesting thing about it, because it turns out to be a one family name. So all of the Immervars are related to me in ways that I can specify. Wowza. I suppose if your name is always true, everything that you've written subsequently underlines that fact. So we can believe everything in your book, How to Hide an Empire. That's true. Yeah, there's not a lie in it. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, that's the wonderful thing about history, isn't it? That it's not necessarily about truth and lies, but it's about perspective. Yeah, I always get people saying to me, no, history is black and white, the truth. I'm like, no, 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 no. When did the Second World War start is, uh, is my retort to this, of which an American would say, well, of course, December 7th, 1941. A Chinese person says, no, 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 it was about nine years before. A Russian gives you another date. And of course, a Brit says 1939. So it's all about perspective. And that's a wonderful thing I really found about your book, because the typical American has a very fixed perspective on what the borders, the boundaries of the United States are. 
Tell us why they're wrong. Yeah, that's right. Look, I grew up in Pennsylvania and I grew mm -hmm. up studying U.S. history and then I went on to start teaching U.S. history. And when I did that, the United States, whose history I was studying and then taught, had mm -hmm. a shape to it. Familiar outline of the contiguous United States, maybe with Alaska and Hawaii in it, if I were thinking carefully. Here's the thing. That's just not what the United States looks like. Uh, there's other parts of the United States that don't appear on that mental map, parts of the United States that too often don't appear as part of the histories. And the thing I wanted to do with this book was not establish a new fact, a new thing that no one had known, although there's some of that in the book. What I wanted to do was to show a new perspective, was to tell my audience, if you think U.S. history is the history of, of just that contiguous blob, you're missing quite a lot. And it's not just a matter of, you know, oh, you should know more about Puerto Rico and, and, and the Philippines and Guam and Hawaii and American Samoa uh, and all the military bases that the United States has claimed jurisdiction over. It's that it's actually hard to understand U.S. history without those places. A lot of really interesting stuff in the history of the United States, stuff that makes sense of what happens to the U.S. mainland happens in those places. And so the hope in this book is to, you know, not unveil a never before seen fact, but to give a different perspective on U.S. history. And I think the classic example of that is Hawaii, isn't it? Uh, Hawaii is a fascinating place historically for, for many reasons. As a Carterphile and somewhat of a, a devotee of flag. It always perplexes me that the Union Jack is on the flag of Hawaii. But putting that to one side, you can't understand the involvement of the United States in the Second World War without the attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. However, in the national consciousness of the, let's say, average mainland American, how did Hawaii even become American? Yeah. Turns out to be a really complicated question because Hawaii at the time was not a state. It's a state now, but it wasn't a state then. It was a territory. The status of these overseas territories, particularly the overseas territories uh, that are heavily populated with non-white people as Hawaii was, could be a little dodgy in the eyes of a lot of mainlanders. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor at Hawaii, what FDR said in his famous date, which will live in infamy speech, is that the empire of Japan attacked the United States of America. And that's how it's remembered, is that this is, in fact, the only time that U.S. soil was attacked in World War II. But there's two things to say about that. Thing one is, um, it seems like this notion that Hawaii was American soil or would count in the eyes of mainlanders as the United States of America as U.S. soil, mm -hmm. that, was a, that was a sort of wobbly fact. And you can see FDR adjusting the speech to double down on, on his claim that this is not just the island of Oahu, where the attack was, but the American island of Oahu. Uh, mm -hmm. And you can see maps and atlases from around the time unsure about whether to list Hawaii as part of the United States or foreign. That's not the only place Japan hit. That was followed up within hours by an attack on Wake Island, Guam, which is another U.S. territory, and the Philippines, which is the largest single colony that the United States ever held. What's really interesting is that FDR knows all this. And in his speech, he's trying to sort of figure out how to claim that the United States mm -hmm. has been attacked. And initially in his speech, he said Japan attacked the Philippines and Hawaii. But he edited the Philippines out, or at least prominent references of the Philippines out, because of precisely this question. Is the Philippines really America? Are the lives lost there American lives? Do they count? And for a lot of people in the U.S. mainland, the answer was no. When did 
America's imperial ambitions start. As a student of American history, there's all this manifest destiny malarkey in the late uh, 19th century. But when do you date it, Daniel? When do you say America moves from being somewhere which is primarily concerned with the continent and then it becomes this undeclared empire? Well, there are two questions there. Uh, One is, when does the United States start to be an empire? And you could argue that it's an empire from day one. And if you were making that argument, here's what you might say. The treaty that ratified U.S. independence, by the time that treaty went through, so both sides had signed it, so the United States was finally a sovereign nation. Well, what was it? Its title is the United States of America, so it seems like it's a union of states. But by that time, it was no longer a union of states alone. It was an amalgam of states and territories because there were these other things that the United States also had that they weren't in the title. They weren't the United States of America, but they were nevertheless there and they actually made up a significant part of the land. So the territory, the territories, right. And so from day one, and they had different governing structures and they had less representation and different kinds of people lived in there. And so from day one, it was, you know, an amalgam of states and territories. That's what it is today. There's five inhabited territories in the United States. Millions of people live in them. And that's what it was every day in between. So arguably, U.S. empire being a variegated space, a hierarchical and variegated space where there's one part of the country that has full set of rights and privileges and another part, a distinct space in the country that doesn't, that starts from the very beginning. But if we're asking about overseas empire, when does the United States launch itself overseas? That's another interesting question, because when you think about that familiar shape that we map in our minds when we think about the United States, um, the contiguous blob, That only shape is only achieved in 1854 with the ratification of the Gadsden Purchase. But here's the thing. That shape only describes U.S. borders for three years of U.S. history. There's three years where that's right, because three years after, in 1857, the United States starts expanding overseas, first taking dozens of nearly 100 uninhabited um, islands in the Pacific and the Caribbean, then in 1867 buying Alaska. By the end of the 19th century, it has a significant colonial empire, including the Philippines, American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, that, that has millions of people in it. Without wanting to put too fine a point on it, do we conceptually think of America being the contiguous blob as you understand it? And then there are notable exceptions. There is Alaska. It's kind of up there and cold. Then there's Hawaii, which is in the middle of the the Pacific. But do we conceptually think of America being that contiguous blob because of language and ethnicity, that the other bits don't sit comfortably with our notion of actually what America is. So hence, Donald Trump has to do backflips or not acknowledge Puerto Rico as being American because they speak Spanish there. They're kind of brown looking, et cetera, et cetera, that white folks are not in the majority. And that is at the heart of the confusion, taking to one side the constitutional issues. But fundamentally, it comes down to, do they speak English there? Are the folks white? Yeah, that certainly historically has been really important. So we know that white control of the country has been really important to the history of the United States and, and fights over, uh, you know, whether the space of the United States within North America will be white controlled or not. Um, Civil War reconstruction, a lot of that is about these issues. But those issues of who gets to control the space of the United States, those also determine the shape of the country, not just where the borders go, but even after those borders have gone where they go, 
who counts as really American, who counts as being in the country and who's just in a different kind of liminal space that doesn't get talked about as much. And and race has largely been the logic. It's It hasn't been the same in every decade. Uh, there's actually a lot of change over time. But nevertheless, if you want to ask why the United States is where it is and has this sort of sense of who's in and who's out, um, I think race is a big part of that. And just to continue your point about Trump, he had this incredible way of talking about Puerto Rico, which is that he talks about Puerto Rico in the second person. So this is, this is a mm-hmm. quotation. Trump will say, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget out of whack. And just in the you and us, you know, you can already, you can hear a, a there and a here and us and a them. And, you know, you can hear the whole history of U.S. empire, which is that for a lot of people that there, there are parts of it that are not a here, but a there. Yeah, there's a great map on our Map Corner website. It's very clever. It's the population density and it's an animation of the United States from, I don't know if it's 1789 or did it start in 1776? It's, it's one or the other. But of course, the density is all on the eastern border, or eastern coast, sorry. It slowly fills out. Dare I say it, and I, I don't upset anybody, but like a virus. So all of a sudden, some place in the Midwest gets populated, then all of a sudden it kind of spreads out from there. Then all of a sudden it jumps to the, to the west coast. You've got California then is admitted into the Union, and then it starts like filling in into the middle. And... That map is a beautiful and very clever thing to behold, the animation, but it doesn't have cause a whole load of arguments because it's only counting the white residents. It's only counting and, and, and maybe, say, the slaves that were in the southern states. I think it's counting those as well. I'm almost positive it actually is, but it's not counting a native peoples. And for every one person that says this is an amazingly clever and mesmerizing animation, you get somebody else saying the bits where it says nobody lived, people were there. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about the history of how the middle of the country, your your Oklahomas, those territories, your Nebraska territories actually became incorporated because they actually had somewhat of a fight, didn't they, to become states? And, And why it took some of them, like Oklahoma, for argument's sake, took so long for Oklahoma to be declared a state. Yeah, just on the first point, what you're noticing, I assume that um, map is mapping census data. And mm-hmm. yes. the incredible thing about the United States census is that it doesn't count the whole country. There are census enumerated people and there are non-census enumerated people. And that's one of the ways in which the United States has had of, of producing a sense that there are some people who really count, who matter, who count literally. And then there are other people mm-hmm. who don't. And not all Native Americans haven't, haven't, haven't been counted by the census for the 19th century and into the 20th century. And, and that's one way of just producing this weird self-portrait of the country, the census that comes out every 10 years that, that doesn't get the country right. You can see a similar denigration of the overseas territories where the populations will be noted. But then when there are all these calculations about like how rural is the United States, how long do people live, the territories will be silently uh, shuffled off stage and they won't figure into the statistics. So people don't get how many Asians there are in the country because the Philippines doesn't count. They don't get that Manila is one of the largest cities in the United States because it doesn't count Mm -hmm. in the census uh, in the same way that Native Americans have a long history of sort of not making it into the census, not literally not counting. So that's really important to recognize. And once you get that uh, those census figures don't tell you the whole country, then you realize that the land that is being quote unquote filled in or quote unquote populated 
already has people living in there. And that's really important to get because otherwise you don't understand why some of these places take so long to become states. You know, when we tell it in myth, the you get the sense that like territories are just starter states and it'll be there really soon and it'll just take a little bit before they become states. And that's true for some places like California has about two years between when the United States annexes it and when it becomes a state uh, because the gold rush pulls a lot of white settlers in and that's enough to make it state worthy. But Oklahoma mm-hmm. is a part of the United States without being a state for more than a century. And it's not the only one. If you look at all the territory to state transitions in the North American mainland, the average time is 45 years. That's a long time. And the reason is that it often takes decades to get enough white settlers such that in the eyes of Washington, that area is ready to be admitted to statehood because you have enough white people who outweigh uh, and demographically outnumber native populations. The reason that Oklahoma takes so long is that for most of its history as U.S. territory, it's not called Oklahoma. It's called Indian Territory. And it is a zone that is reserved particularly for Indian polities and often is sort of a a holding pen as Indian polities are removed from the East Coast. They're given land uh, west of the Mississippi and that land is crunched down. So it it eventually becomes Oklahoma, what, what we now know as Oklahoma. But that's why Oklahoma takes so long is because of who lives there, people who don't always count the census, but nevertheless are filling up the land. And, and it takes a long time for Oklahoma to fall under white control and therefore be admitted to a state. There are a couple of countries around the world that absolutely wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the United States, Liberia and Panama. And I always kind of think that, again, being a student of kind of history and geography, that I would say 99% of Americans just aren't aware of the role that America played in the Caribbean, let's say, in Central America, in terms of its interventionist uh, foreign policy from the early 1900s up to the the, the 1930s. Could you explain the status of the Panama Canal that was? Obviously, now it's reverted back to Panama. But how exactly America acquired this strip of land? How the state of Panama was was created? And and why this is kind of key in terms of American empire? Yeah, so it's just important to recognise that In the 19th century and into the 20th century, the United States was in the territory game. So when it got Mm. bigger and more powerful, it claimed new territory. And what it did in Panama is a little weird. What Washington really wanted, uh, Teddy Roosevelt wanted it, was um, control of the canal that would connect uh, the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. And Panama was a really promising site a place where that canal could be dug. The problem is that Panama was not available for that. I mean, the United States didn't own it. So what Teddy Roosevelt did is he sort of convinced Panamanians to rebel, to declare independence, and then he would the United States would back their independence. So they now have a small country called Panama. And then they would grant the United States access to the canal zone, which they did, which is weird because it's a zone that bisects Panama. So you cannot go from one side of Panama to the other without actually going through U.S. held Mm -hmm. territory. Now, the United States didn't technically annex the Panama Canal Zone, but it signed a treaty that gave it all the power it would have if it were a sovereign. So it's it's everything except annexation in name. And uh, that became really important to the U.S.'s strategy that it, it could move its ships from one ocean to another. And but the cost of that, if you think about it for Panamanians, is incredible, which is living in a country which has running down the middle of it 
basically U.S. territory, right? I mean, imagine what it would be like if the Mississippi River and like a little zone around it were just owned by China and that you just could not cross from one side of the United States to another without going through a Chinese checkpoint. That's kind of, that's the kind of thing we're dealing with. It's, it's extraordinary. And that's just one of these overseas holdings that the United States maintains throughout the 20th century. Even before that, America has this role well, it's Americans, American businessmen have this role in Central America and also in Hawaii, which is you have adventurers. You have William Walker in Nicaragua. You have the, the businessmen that basically have the coup d'etat in, in Hawaii. How much of that was centrally planned from Washington or were these true adventurers? Did William Walker basically just go off and, and actually succeed in becoming the president of Nicaragua in the mid 1800s purely off his own back? Or was this a nod and a wink, as we'd say in Britain, from Washington? Go out there and try and take over these territories and then we've got your back in a couple of years time. So there's a, a long history of private foreign policy conducted in the United mm -hmm. States. Um, and, and one way that that looks is men going into Latin America and trying to take control of the government, take control of the government and hoping that the U.S. government will ultimately have their backs. Sometimes that works. There's a part of Mexico that gets hived off as the Republic of Texas, and that ultimately becomes a U.S. state. Mm -hmm. But not all the men who tried to carve out bits of Latin America and have them annexed to the United States were successful. And the reason is that Washington was nervous about taking too much of Latin America. There, you have to understand that there are two things happening at the same time. On the one hand, this is a country that seeks to extend its grandeur and, and claim land. And that expansion was a real desire in the United States in the 19th century uh, in the hearts of powerful men. But on the other hand, expansion into heavily populated areas always carries the costs for the United States, or at least in the eyes of the men who lead it. You take the land, but you also get the people on it who then have to be in some way incorporated into the union. And so guys like William Walker got out in front of Washington and, and, and took it too far. So, you know, they sought to grab parts of Latin America that ultimately Washington didn't want to have uh, and didn't want to have for racist reasons. So you can actually see a conflict between imperial expansion and racism and the, the, the southern border of the United States. The border with Mexico is in some ways a compromise line between how much of Mexico did the United States want to take and how few Mexicans was it able to, mm. uh, to prevent and, you know, being part of the country. When the United States went to war with Mexico, it did not seek to take all of Mexico. Instead, it took the less populated northern frontier of Mexico, which would give it, as one newspaper observed, all of Mexico can have with as few Mexicans. Mm. I always think that's really interesting. It's a, it's a really good point because those Mexicans that were in the northern bit of Mexico then becomes the United States. There is a scant history of them, the Anglo-Mexicans, but they have been almost completely assimilated, haven't they? They don't really exist in the popular consciousness of American kind of social history. They were there, but, but they then end up speaking English and, and to all intents and purposes do, do become anglicised in the kind of social history of the United States. But OK, so we have this contiguous map of the United States. We all kind of know what it looks like. There's a big straight line at the top. And then there's the border with Mexico at the bottom. And then classically, we have Alaska and then Hawaii, as, as we said earlier. What other bits of the undeclared American empire are there? Before you go on to that, please explain to me very quickly. I should have put this in, in my question before, so I, I, I do apologize. Why is it that when America goes to war with Spain, 
1899 that Cuba gets granted independence, but Puerto Rico doesn't. Oh, Puerto Rico, shall we say. Let's get my uh, pronunciation better. Let's do that. And then let's go through the bits of the globe that America owns. Yeah, sure. So the United States fights a war with Spain in 1898. And what's really important to recognize is that that's not the start of the war. That's the U.S. entry into the war, just in the way as you were mm -hmm. talking about, you know, a U.S. perspective. World War II starts in 1941. Spain was already fighting a transoceanic war against its colonial subjects. Spain was facing serious rebellions in its territories in Cuba, in the Philippines, to some degree in Puerto Rico as well. These were somewhat linked, not fully linked. But nevertheless, Spain was having a colonial crisis. And the United States intervened in that colonial crisis. And it was a kind of weird moment because on the one hand, the United States intervened under the banner of liberation. We are here to free Cubans from Spanish oppression was the kind of talk you would hear. But this is also a moment of imperial ambition for the United States and of argument about that ambition. Some people really want mm -hmm. the United States to grow and to include places like Cuba. Other people really don't. And often they really don't for the racist reasons we just discussed. So what happens is kind of weird. Anti-imperialists. Just what just what you there, though, Daniel. And I did think of this when, you when we talked very briefly about William Walker in, in Nicaragua. If there had been gold in Nicaragua to the same amount that there was in California around San Francisco, do you think those racist um, objections would have been trumped? Was it, it, it's not just race. It's also race and then also mm, we can't see the economic and you know geopolitical st strategic interest in grabbing this territory right now. Well, sure, surely that's the case. It's, it's a, right, it's a cost-benefit thing. On the one hand, the benefit, there's benefits to imperial expansion, including resources, including strategic position. Uh, and then, from the, again, I'm, I'm uh, describing the logic, not, of course, my own thoughts. Yes. And then from the perspective of, you know, 19th century politicians, there's also a cost, which is the people who then might have to be included in the United States in some ways, incorporated. And so, yeah, if you raise the strategic benefit of a place, that might make it more palatable. However, there's a long history of places that seem really strategically beneficial. The Dominican Republic, rich in coffee plantations. Hawaii for a while was not annexed to the United States, despite the fact that Hawaiian you know, fruit and sugar planters were desperate to get it annexed and were actually making quite a lot of money in Hawaii. These are profitable places that the United States in the 19th century declined to annex and declined to annex for precisely racist reasons. So yeah, if you make, make a place even more profitable, presumably that would add pressure for annexation. But uh, the forces against annexation throughout a lot of the 19th century had been kind of strong, especially when it came to pop heavily, thickly populated places. So that's what happens in 1899. You can see the argument happening. Anti-imperialists say, okay, uh, the United States can go to war with Spain, but the caveat of that is that the United States cannot annex Cuba in this war because mm -hmm. Cuba looked like the most likely war prize. However, that law didn't say anything about Puerto Rico, and it also didn't say anything about Guam, and it didn't say anything about the Philippines, and it absolutely didn't say anything about Hawaii and American Samoa, which weren't Spanish lands. In this moment of imperial enthusiasm, where a lot of the racist hesitation was overcome uh, in, in favor of a different kind of racism and a different kind of, and, a, and a strong interest in imperial expansion, the United States didn't take Cuba because it wasn't allowed to, but nevertheless, it did take. 
Puerto Rico, and it did take the Philippines, and it did take Guam, and then in, in just a sort of imperial shopping spree, why not, finally annexed Hawaii and annexed American Samoa. It did occupy Cuba. So Cuba mm. was under U.S. control, but it didn't get annexed to the United States. And that's because that's a mark of, of the serious resistance, even at this time, to empire uh, that anti-imperialists successfully put up. In your book, you count the military bases that America has throughout the globe. And as a Brit, I think we're, we're all aware that uh, Britain has some bases in Germany, a legacy of the Second World War. We have two sovereign bits of Cyprus, and then there are other scattered British military possessions. And of course, there still are, uh, like the island of Bermuda is still a colony of, of the British crown. But I think Americans, even though the fact that America has bases all around the world is pretty well known, and of course, America has bases in Germany, it's NATO uh, kind of provisions and, and whatever, and in Poland, et cetera, et cetera. But you count those bases as being part of this outer American empire. Why so, sir? First of all, let's just glory at the, you know, stand in awe at the extent of this. It's true. Britain has mm. overseas bases. So does Russia. China, I think, has a few now. But if you take all countries' overseas bases except for the United States and you add them up, you're looking at dozens, maybe 30 or 40. If you look at the United States' overseas bases, you're looking at a number that's closer to 800. The Pentagon, it's, I mean, 800. Yeah, it's shocking, right? The Pentagon admits to over 500, um, but also the Pentagon, there are bases that the Pentagon does not reveal the location of or count officially, but then we know about. So we think that it's around 800, give or take. We're not exactly sure because a lot of them are secret, but it's absolutely more than 500. It's, an, it's kind of an extraordinary thing. On the one hand, if you take all the you know, listed bases, you know, 500 or so that we know about, and you add them all up, like in terms of area and you mash them all together, you get an acreage that's, you know, not much different in size from Houston. Like it's not a lot of land. And so you might think, why count these? Why bother talking about these? This isn't like, you know, the British colonize, you know, to scramble for Africa and the British, you know, conquering India and, and ruling these, these huge areas. Mm -hmm. um, certainly in terms of sheer acreage, it's really not a lot, but I think it would be a mistake to round those little dots down to zero, because it turns out that having little spots of U.S. jurisdiction in the middle of other countries makes an enormous difference. People feel it. There's a lot of resistance to these bases, and that resistance can be really important in global politics. Um, there's two Japanese prime ministers who've had to resign over issues stemming from U.S. basing and the protests around them two Japanese prime ministers. And there's other heads of state who have also had to resign or had succession crises or something like that because of these bases, because these bases can become really important political issues wherever they are. And they're also magnets. They're, they're places where the United States uh, beams out its messages to the world and where people who interact with the United States interact with it, particularly around these bases, because there's little enclaves where there's a lot of U.S. servicemen, all kinds of U.S. culture, uh, U.S. radio stations that are just kind of concentrated in these bases, and they become really important contact zones between the United States and other, other countries. I could get this slightly wrong, but it goes to the back of your point about the 300-odd undeclared bases. But I think it was last year that there was an incident in um, Saharan Africa, where I believe three to five American soldiers were killed. I could be slightly wrong on the number 
And people were surprised. You know, what the hell are Americans doing there? But of course, America does have bases, absolutely military bases all around the world. It has a base in Niger, in in the middle of the Sahara, and it's an air force base. And yes, and it goes to underline that fact that uh, American military might is peppered all around the world, so much so that there can be this incident, people like, I didn't know that America even had troops there and whatever, but it has um, an undeclared, or at least it was up until that point, an undeclared uh, Air Force base. Yeah, sometimes something goes wrong around one of these bases mm. or where troops are stationed. And when that goes wrong, you suddenly realize, oh, right, there are people that, like there are troops there. I didn't know that there were now. And, you know, um, a, a great example of this from the perspective of uh, the United States is September 11th. So after Al-Qaeda attacked New York and Washington, people in the United States asked, why did this happen? And usually the way they asked that was, why do they hate us? Mm. Here's the thing. Osama bin Laden was public in his reasons for his jihad against the United States. And one of the main reasons that he kept returning to over and over again in his career was a U.S. military base in Saudi Arabia. His concern was that for the United States to station its troops in Saudi Arabia was to put infidels in the Holy Land, the land of Mecca and Medina, mm. and to surrender some of the sovereignty of this really important country, his country. And I remember at the time hearing that and thinking, really? Is the U.S. base in Saudi Arabia? Like, what is it doing? Why is it there? What is the point of it? Is, is that important? Mm. Should I be concerned about that? Is that worth objecting to? I mean, I had no clue about it. It's, it's easy to map the country in your mind as, as just this sort of blob of land and not to realize that the flag flies in all kinds of places. And, you know, if you don't have to think about that from the perspective of, you know, being in Pennsylvania or New York, you do have to think about that a lot if you're in Saudi Arabia. Last big question to you, Professor. You've obviously thought about the history of the United States, how it's grown, you know, the continental country and then the overseas territories, unincorporated territories, all these weird constitutional backflips that um, American, uh, America has done to uh, claim bits of territory in the Pacific, in the Caribbean, wherever. Um, with your crystal ball in 100 years' time, what will the American nation and empire look like? Great question. And I am obliged to tell you, I'm a historian and I don't predict the future. I'm a doctor, Jim. Um, but look, here's what I can say. Uh, it seems like the basing structure... What, it's going into space? Starfleet? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it seems like the basing structure of the United States is contracting that growing. Um, so I think we're going to see, you know, unless there's a major war that is of a different scope than the ongoing war on terror, um, I think we're probably going to see a diminution of the bases. And that's um, not necessarily because the United States has grown more benevolent, but it's also it's because it's, its technology keeps getting better. And the better your tech is, the easier it is to move things around without having as many little dots to connect them. You can, you know, fly the planes uh, further and faster and easier. So, and, and you can also substitute physical bases on land for bases, basically floating bases on ships. And then I think the United States is at a really interesting um, crisis point for its inhabited overseas territories. Puerto Rico is in the news way more in the last two years. And that partly has to do with a hurricane, but also partly has to do, I think, a growing sense, even within the mainland, even for people who don't have Puerto Rican or Guamanian backgrounds, uh, that there's something that feels deeply off 
about the continuation of, of empire to the, you know, far into the 21st century. And I think that the overseas territories are going to keep making the news, partly for the really harrowing reason, which is that they are unusually and disproportionately vulnerable to climate change. And so, you know, Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands, the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. In the last two years, each one of these, these are three of the five inhabited territories, has been threatened by major storms. That's going to keep happening. It's going to be a really scary thing. And so I think it's, we're kind of at a moment of choice in the United States as, as to how it wants to be in the world and how it wants to deal with these anomalous spaces within its constitutional fabric. You know, I would not be surprised if within the next five to 10 years, we see either status changes in some of these territories or a legal reconsideration of at the supreme level of the Supreme Court of the principle that the overseas territories shouldn't be covered by the Constitution or shouldn't be fully covered by the Constitution and should have separate laws applied to them. And could you ever see a situation 100 years, 150 years, whereby the borders of the United States that we, we fundamentally think of the United States, the contiguous bits, that those might even change because of demographic reasons. You know, it's funny because it's you think, my God, countries don't change in shape. The map has been the way it's been. And, and they change. Well, it's, it's, it's true because yeah. the, like in the last 50 years, the map has changed less than maps have changed in the past. The dismantling of the Soviet Union, the split between Sudan and South Sudan, there have been important changes, but we're not seeing the kind of cartographic adventurism that you used to see in the 19th century. In the that early is a wonderful expression. Thank you. Uh, you know, I'm going to use in a party. Just, I like that. Just try mapping <laughs> Poland over the course of the early 20th century. Oh. It's like a cursed accordion. It, you know, it expands, it contracts, and it's, and it's harrowing. It's really awful. Uh, so mm. on the one hand, borders seem to be more stable than when they used to. But on the other hand, there's a way in which um, I think when we think about the United States, we haven't noticed when those borders have moved. Because if when you think of the United States, all you think of is the mainland, you don't notice the annexation and then independence of the Philippines. You don't notice when the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands becomes U.S. territory. And that happens, mm -hmm. I mean, it's a complicated process, but you know, formally it happens as a territory in the 80s. You don't notice uh, the Panama Canal Zone reverting to Panama. And, uh, you know? mm. So there actually has been a lot of changes to the U.S. map. And, and therefore, I think that makes it a lot more thinkable that the U.S. in 20 years could look different. Uh, Daniel Imavar, thank you for coming on to Map Corner. You are an associate professor of history at the Department of Northwestern University. You're going to have to remind us, because I'm sure listeners have forgotten, with all of my droning on, but with your excellent uh, answer to my questions, the name of your book, sir, and where it can be purchased. Sorry. Yes. The book is called How to Hide an Empire, Mm -hmm. And I'm about to tell you the subtitle, but before I do, I have to warn you that there are two distinct subtitles. So if you oh, were okay. buying the U.S. edition available where all fine books are sold, it is a history of the greater United States. If you're buying the British edition, which is also available where all fine books are sold, uh, you <laughs> would be buying a short history of the greater United States. Let me assure you, the length is identical. It's just the British publishers are slightly more cheeky. So my publisher there, the Bodley Head, wanted to have a short history of the greater United States. And that's what you've got if you're buying it in the UK. Well, I suppose compared to our very long and storied history, the, the story of the United States is a short one. Fits in 500 pages. Whether you count that as short or not is up to you. <laughs> Daniel, thank you for coming on to the show. You take care, sir. Take care, it's been a pleasure. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So that's some really fascinating stuff from Daniel there about what people think of when they think of a place and uh, who gets included and who doesn't. I just think there's probably so many stories like that all around the world and it just shows the power of narrative uh, in making a nation really because narrative bonds people together but often it also defines who isn't part of the group Mm. Uh, and sometimes the geography doesn't overlay that very well. Mm. Uh, That's a, a very neat and succinct way of putting it. I'm sure it's a topic which would be something that we'll refer back to on future episodes because it is a fascinating one. One person's idea of the nation, of of country, isn't necessarily another's and uh, sometimes they can be violently at variance with each other. But there's one character though, Claire, that everybody takes to their heart and no one's got a crossword about and that's Santa. And being as this is a, a Christmas episode, I feel that we should have a little bit of some geographic musings about our Saint Nick. Do you want to give us your, your sleigh bells? Oh, yeah, I was about to reach for the sleigh bells. Perfect. Hello, it's Mark here, otherwise known as Yokel Bear on the Twitters. I'm from one of uh, Royfield's other podcasts, Dumpty Dum. Yes, the Archers one. But Royfield has asked me to record a bit for Map Corner about the kind of geography of Father Christmas or Santa Claus or St. Nicholas, whatever you want to call him. And what a globe-trotting story it is. It's a story of saints, hot Italian sailors, po-faced Puritans and a well-known drinks manufacturer. And it's going to be quite the global odyssey. Now, I want you to imagine, as you're listening to this, um, on the Indiana Jones films, if you've seen them, when he's travelling from country to country, you've got a map of the world, and they superimpose, like, that 1920s plane flying between the destinations. 
I love the Indiana Jones films. Well, apart from the second one, which was like, you know, a little bit racist. And the fourth one where the script writers were obviously on drugs. But anyway, I want you to just imagine when I mentioned these places that you've flown on that little Indiana Jones plane. Anyway, let's get on with the story. Our starting point is in Turkey, in the town of Patara in AD 270. And this was where a child called Nicholas was born. And he went on to become Saint Nicholas. Now, he probably was destined for sainthood from quite an early age. A bit like my cousin who was destined to become an accountant because he announced that he wanted to be an accountant when he was like seven years old. Yes. But right from the get-go, Saint Nick was, well, a bit of a saint, really. At his christening, apparently reputedly, he stood up on the altar and stood there for four hours. Remember, he's only a baby, with his arms outstretched like Jesus on the cross, which showed his kind of holiness. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was the vicar, I'd be like, look, Nick, can you get down, please? Look, we've got a wedding in in 30 minutes. Now, famously, throughout his life, St. Nicholas remained a virgin, untouched by the hand of man, woman, anybody. Which I think just really goes to show that despite what everyone thinks, Santa isn't a ho-ho-ho. Now, being a bit of a go-getting <laughs> saint, of course he got a promotion and he ended up as the Bishop of Myra, which is in southern Turkey. So get on your Indiana Jones plane, we're now in southern Turkey. Now, it was there that he overheard a man was having a financial crisis, uh, couldn't afford his daughter's wedding, universal story, that kind of thing. Now, reputedly, St. Nick, who was a bit of a nosy neighbour, overheard this and decided he was going to do something about it. So each night, he would go past the person's house and throw money through the window. And this is the origins of giving gifts you know just giving gifts was something that saint nicholas did and you know i wish people would throw money through my window actually better than the socks i'm getting no doubt saint nicholas died in on the 6th of december ad 343 which became his saint's day which is why a lot of places like in the netherlands and and especially in kind of scandinavian countries that's when present giving happens because it's saint nicholas day now, he became a really popular saint, I think because of the gift-giving. Everyone loves to get a gift, don't they? So, you know, under the name Sinterklaas, in other words, Saint Nicholas in, in Dutch, he became really, really popular, and it spread across Europe, but especially in, in Holland. So get on your Indiana Jones plane. We're now going to Amsterdam. Now, Saint Nicholas would appear with some helpers, um, which were routinely described as about six or seven black men who worked for free and didn't appear to get any wage for this. Yeah, I think it sounds a bit dodgy. Is he, is he got slaves or something? Sounds a bit, you know, a bit racist to me, maybe? I don't know. David Sedaris, the, well, the well-known kind of satirist who's way funnier than me, actually does a thing about this called Six to Eight Black Men. Um, and it is really, really funny about how traditions mm. were sometimes... You know, maybe not as politically correct as we are now. Now, St. Nicholas's body was in Myra, um, uh, which was great. They buried him and all that until the year 1087 AD, when some Italian sailors came and manhandled his body and took it to the town of Barry in southern Italy. Um, that's Barry, B-A-R-I, not Barry as in in South Wales where the fun fair is. 
And also, I mean, this is kind of relatable. I mean, who hasn't occasionally been manhandled by some hot uh, Italian sailors? Am I right? Some men and some women, eh? And so if you want to go and visit St. Nicholas's body, that's where you need to go. Now, as I said, um, this cult of St. Nicholas was spreading. So let's get on the Indiana Jones plane and go to London. Because St. Nicholas kind of evolved into Father Christmas in Britain from Tudor times onwards. But it was very loose. There was no kind of way about kind of how he dressed and stuff like that. Also, he had different names. And my favourite one in London, he was known as Captain Christmas. Which, let's face it, would be the ideal Marvel Universe Christmas movie. Am I right, Royfield? I think I am. Now, that was all going splendidly. You know, people were enjoying giving gifts, celebrating Christmas, brilliant. And then the Puritans came along. Well, what a buzzkill they were. Banned Christmas, and then some of them went to America. So get on your Indiana Jones plane. We're going to America now. Plymouth Rock. It's the, um, the Puritans... They didn't like Christmas. No Santa Claus there. But the problem was, was that the original um, pilgrims, the original um, Puritans fleeing from Britain, were kind of very hardline. But then the ones that followed behind weren't very hardline. For instance, um, a group of pilgrims travelling on a ship called the Ark got so drunk on Christmas Day out at sea that about eight people fell overboard and died. Which is, as far as I'm concerned, there's your message for responsible drinking at Christmas. So despite the Puritans trying to kind of not have Father Christmas or Santa Claus, well, sorry, Santa Claus won that battle. So let's take a little plane hop from Plymouth Rock over to um, New York itself. And this was where a guy called um, Clement Clark Moore wrote a long poem about Father Christmas, which which really kind of set the scene in America of what Father Christmas was, certainly in the, you know, the mid-Victorian times. Um, now, a lot of people think it's called Twas the Night Before Christmas, but actually it's not. It's just been kind of, that's what it's been called. It's actually called A Visit from St. Nicholas. So it's really clear, you know, this is a St. Nick thing. This Father Christmas was very much like the English one. No real kind of idea of what a uniform that Santa Claus would wear. It was all kind of loose, but there was a general thing of St. Nicholas would come and visit. Now, then we get to Coca-Cola. Now, I bet you're all sat there thinking, oh, yeah, well, Coca-Cola invented the modern-day Santa. Wrong. It was actually the White Rock Ginger Ale Company who created Santa Claus, who looks, in that campaign, looks exactly like he does today, in 1923, which was full 10 years before Coca-Cola did the, um, the advert, or did their Santa Claus kind of marketing. Now, obviously, we don't want to get sued, so let me just say this very, very carefully. Somehow, and we don't know how, after seeing... The ginger ale adverts, Coca-Cola mysteriously had the same idea. It's a mystery, an absolute mystery. But that's where we've ended up today, basically. So we've gone from this guy standing on an altar in Turkey, you know, 200 years after the birth of Jesus, right through to a little bit of industrial espionage, allegedly, in the 
early 20th century. So it's quite a journey, really, isn't it? So, but it just goes to show, I think, that Santa Claus is a real global thing and it's become global. I mean, this, in the time that I have here, can't even go into kind of how like the African continent and Christians in maybe China and stuff like that do. But let's just remember the real meaning behind this presence. And I'm hoping getting some good ones this year. Anyway, that's me done. The history of Santa Claus done. Have a great Christmas, everyone. Uh, cue some sleigh bells there, surely, Claire. Oh, sorry. Well done, local bear. The socks are in the post. <laughs> I've never been manhandled by an Italian sailor, but I bet you have because you, you did all that kind of sultry dancing on the dance floor, but maybe he was Spanish, a Spanish sailor. <laughs> no comment. Mm. Uh, so, of course, folks, that was in place of our normal audio postcard. We will be having one from Las Vegas because I've got strong feelings about the place. I don't like it, right, in the next episode <laughs> uh, next month. Uh, but, Claire, I suppose we should either quickly have a bit of a... a a ramble about Christmas and what it means to us before we go on to the calls. Sure. Christmas travel as a way of segueing nicely into our calls. My Christmas travel history is it's a Swindon, Bedford, Winchester triangle for most of my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Not so much this year, actually, but for most of my childhood. When we lived in Swindon, we had family back in Bedford and we got family in Winchester. And when we moved back to Bedford, we'd go across to Swindon and then down to Winchester or one way or the other. For me, it was always a sort of somewhere between Christmas and New Year, three-way trips between Swindon, mm. Bedford and Winchester. So those places are almost like a holy trinity for you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. My Christmas travel story, the one that really sticks out for me in my mind, was 1984. My mum and dad sent me to Jamaica by myself and I always look back on that trip and it was definitely the trip where my dad wanted me to go back to the mother country to the motherland so to speak so you know to go a boy and come back a man it was all of that type of stuff it was it was very clear you are going by yourself you're going to spend a month with your grandmother with your cousins in Jamaica and it was one of the most magical times of my life, Claire, through to seeing Simon Le Bon at Heathrow Airport and asking him for his autograph, getting on a plane <laughs> and I'm 15. And these are the good old days where, you know, they just throw alcohol at you. Everything was just free on, on the planes and stuff. And this is British Airways, so they're doing things properly. And they came along every half an hour. Would you like a drink, sir? And of course, I'm 15. And I'm like, um, Yes, please. And there's a full alcoholic drinks, uh, you know, trolley. And I chickened out the first time. And I said, um, I'll have a Coke. And she, she poured me a Coke. And everybody else is having whiskey, gin, vodka, whatever, beer. Second time she came around. And this is like an eight-hour journey. She came around every half an hour. I said, I'll have a vodka and orange, please. She went, there you go, sir. I went, oh, my goodness. 
Right. I mean, there's a lot of things that don't apply. And maybe it doesn't come under the normal jurisdiction. Well, maybe. Maybe that was it. Right. But I remember wobbling off that plane and going, this holiday is awesome. And it hasn't even started. It was just brilliant. The whole holiday, Claire, was just amazing. My, that's my Christmas travel story. And shall we see what our callers have also got to say about uh, their Christmas travel stories? Yeah, let's start with Jan. Hello, He's got a this is Jan Mitchell calling from Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm at 49.28 degrees north and 123.12 degrees west. I'm calling in with a Christmas travel story. Many, many years ago, when I was 16 years of age, our family uh, traveled from Edmonton, Alberta, to, Ve- to Vernon, British Columbia, to have Christmas with our relatives. We were driving over the Rockies, and my dad had run out of steam, and my mom had run out of steam, so they were both asleep in the car, and I was driving. And it was blowing uh, snow, it was like a blizzard, and it was very late at night. So... I was driving along, and I was driving quite cautiously because it was slippery. And all of a sudden, I saw two glowing red orbs in the distance. And they came upon me quite quickly. And I realized at the very last second that I was about to hit a moose. Now, moose out here are much taller than a car. So I hit the gas as fast as I could, and we swerved. And we just missed the moose, and all I saw were four long legs going past me in the window. So it was a very scary moment, and my family slept through the whole thing. Anyway, it was a wonderful Christmas and a beautiful, snowy, magical time. Thanks. She saw a moose, and then she hit the accelerator. If it were me, I would have hit the brakes, but maybe you learn how to do it differently. <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe the right thing to do with that, because I, I believe that the faster you hit a moose, maybe the more likely it is to go over the top of the car and not through the windscreen. I don't know. I'm, I was, I've been trying to wonder what, what the thinking is behind speeding up at a moose as opposed to <laughs> slowing down. I don't know. Have you got any insights from your time in Canada? Um, no, but there is... There's this counterintuitive thing about when you're in a skid in the snow, the way that you drive. So you don't hit the brakes. You do kind of like power steer. But that's to do with snow as opposed to not hitting an object who's got glowing orbs as eyes staring at you. You know, so (laughs) I don't really know. But suffice to say, um, it's a great story. There is a whole skill of obviously driving in inclement weather and I was caught in Canada last winter um dry I had to drive into Toronto to pick up Noah and I've never driven in weather as bad as that but everybody just slowed down on you know on the motorway on the freeway there and everybody has snow tires as well so they're more grippy mm-hmm. than uh, the, the regular tyres that we just have all year round in the UK. Um, so I think snow tyre time in southern Ontario is kind of like mid-November. You put your snow tyres on and you keep them on until March, April. 
so they have a deeper tread but also there's something about the durability actually of the rubber that it's um it, there's, there's something about that you, you can't have them in the summer because they will degrade really quite quickly but there's something about the cold and stuff but being on that motorway claire the snow came down so thick so fast that you couldn't see any road markings at all and what everybody was doing was just driving in the real tracks of the car in front yeah you know and it, it i was scared i've never been in weather like that and stuff but to your average canadian it's just a walk in the park, quite quite literally. But mm. yeah, it's like going into warp speed, isn't it? Driving into snow like that in a, in a particularly on a motorway, there's nothing else much around. Mm. It just it just has that effect on. It looks like some sort of sci-fi film where you go into warp speed in space. Mm. Uh, shall we have another call? Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to the subject of uh, tackling winter weather uh, in cars. Is that old grey whiskers then? Yeah, 2433. Hi, Royfield. Just listening to my first ever map corner, and I just heard somebody calling in about journeys in his dad's old Morris Aid. Well, I have to say that my most remembered journey in the old Morris Aid was the winter of 1963, when we were coming back from my grandparents' house in South Devon to our home in Poole in Dorset. And it started to snow. And as most people remember, it snowed and it snowed and it snowed. Well, we were one of the last vehicles to get through over the heights west of Dorchester. And when we got down into the village of Beer Regis, and by this time, the three of us kids sat in the back of the car with hot water bottles and blankets. The hot water bottles had gone cold. We were struggling to get out of the town. My dad actually turned the car round and reversed up the hill because it was the lowest gear he could achieve. And the only way we could get out of that place. And then at the top of the hill, he turned round and we drove on home and we saw the site of the town power station chimneys which meant we were nearly home so anyway that's my recollection going back to 1963 when i was nine by then we associate because we're in the northern hemisphere we associate christmas with snow don't we and because mm-hmm. the, the traditions of Santa Claus, as Yokelberg said, of oh, even though St. Nicholas actually hails from Turkey, but then it gets conflated and mixed up with um, these Northern European traditions. So we let the nights draw in. And the one thing which yeah, yeah. Bear didn't mention because he was talking about Santa Claus as opposed to Christmas per se, but of course the Christian church appropriated Christmas from the Roman festival of Sol Invictus, which was in effect mid-winter. And, mm-hmm. and it was one of the clever ways that the Christian church appropriated pagan traditions to keep the peasants happy. All of a sudden, there's all this Jesus malarkey and you, you can't do all your pleasant yeah. pagan pe- that's festivals. That's a long tradition as well, because the, the Romans appropriated it from people before them as well. So I'm sure they probably yeah. nicked it from the Greeks, exactly, as they mixed, nicked all their gods well, from the Greeks and there's changed a few mid- of the names. Midwinter festivals have always been a big thing, haven't they? Mm. So uh, I remember seeing a thing recently, sometime this year, about how 
the sort of theory that Stonehenge isn't really meant to celebrate the summer solstice, but to meant to celebrate the winter solstice because it works on both mm-hmm. actually because of the way it's laid out. But we've always assumed that it's a, it's a summer solstice thing when in fact it may just as easily have been there to mark the winter solstice. The power of tradition is the, is so strong that even in California, people will have, you know, winter wreaths on their doors, even in Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really got from that holiday in 1984. You got Christmas cards and they had snow on them in Jamaica. <laughs> it was all about these northern European traditions of what christmas was all about yes you have a bit of jesus and uh, you know and a baby in a manger but it was santa claus on his sleigh it was snow and you were in the middle of jamaica and uh listening to the radio on christmas day and there'll be a little bit of reggae but there will be sleigh bells and lots of ho ho hoing and stuff so hey (laughs) well done you our next caller trying to pull me to task about a comment I made a few episodes ago. So um, from Northern Europe via Jamaica, shall we go to Canada and a little bit of talk about Bosnia? Indeed. Hello, Map Corner. This is Mary. I'm not contrary on Twitter. And I'm at 43 degrees, 44 minutes and 30 seconds north, 79 degrees, 22 minutes and 24 seconds west, which puts me in Toronto. And I'd like to contribute some thoughts on flags because Royfield opened the door for flag discussions. And I think Royfield was being rather unkind about the flag of Bosnia-Herzegovina, saying that it wasn't classic, nobody could really get behind it. The Bosnians I've met are very proud of their new flag and wear it for sporting events, the football and other occasions. And I, I do see it around the place. So I would dispute that. And also it is only 20 something years old it's very new it does take time for flags to be kind of adopted into the you know people's understanding of of the flags of the world um i'm living in canada and the canadian flag as we know it with the maple leaf um is you know only 50 something years old from 1965 before that it was a a variation on the union jack uh and again, now it's really hard to think of a, a more Canadian symbol than the maple leaf and that little red and white flag stitched on people's backpacks as they go around the world. Um, it's become a real symbol. So I think give it time for Bosnia-Herzegovina. Um, the other cool thing about the Canadian flag was that they um, also broke some of the vexillological rules Um when they put it together. So there's something called the Canadian pale, which is where you have that middle stripe of white vertically taking up 50% of the flag area. That's called a Canadian pale. Um, and again, going back to what Royfeld said about the Bosnia-Herzegovina, like how they kind of broke some of the rules by doing this sort of triangular feature doesn't fit with some of the more traditional ways of doing flags. Again, I don't really know that that's a big problem. And I think in time, um, if people can get behind a flag, feeling it represents them and something meaningful then rules are made to be broken okay thank you for the great podcast and keep up the good work uh shall i go first considering she's trying to beat me up (laughs) go ahead (laughs) you raise a couple of really good points there uh mary and one of them is that we do get used to flags over time and then then they just then become normal 
But I still would say that after 20 years, that flag looks odd. Now, if I gave you the impression that Bosnians have not embraced that flag, I apologise because they absolutely have and they're very proud of their flag. And having the privilege to go to Sarajevo this year, you could absolutely see that. The flag is everywhere and and people wear it proudly on T-shirts, etc. And it does feel like something which has been designed by committee. The Canadian flag is a great example of a motif which the country had for maple leaf being pulled from its coat of arms. A motif which Canadians were comfortable with. It meant Canada before it was actually put on the flag. And the Canadian flag, as I said, is one of the most successful examples of a flag being designed in the last 50 years of which it's become iconic straight away. And of course, it has echoes of the French flag. So it gives a very breathable link to the French-speaking inhabitants of Canada. And it feels bright and new. And and actually, you, you could argue that it breaks one of the key classic rules of, and I'm not even talking about the Canadian pale, they will say if a flag cannot be copied by an eight-year-old, it's a bad flag. And if you're going to technically do that maple leaf correctly, an eight-year-old can't do that. It's actually quite a complex thing, but it completely and utterly works. And one of the stories which is legion about the flag of Canada is Canadian backpackers love to have it on their backpack when they go out traveling because they're going to be mistaken for Americans. And it's a key signifier that they are not American. And every Canadian that travels will tell you this and stuff. So I take your central point that give it time and we'll get used to it. What do you think, Claire? Uh, Was it a couple of years ago when they were looking to redesign the um, New New Zealand Zealand, flag? And one of the the suggestions was... The, the the fern leaf on the on the black background. Mm-hmm. I thought it was so beautiful and elegant, and and a similar sort of feel to the Canadian flag. Although obviously the colourways are all different and the style is different, but there's sort of that sense of a natural feature that's already very well recognised in terms of uh, the New Zealand rugby team and you know the kind of sporting links to it. So. I thought it was a real shame that they, they didn't choose to twitch their flag at that point. So I think that's one another one that could have been a very instant classic. Mm. Um, and, you know, I can't imagine Canada having any other flag, really. Mm. <laughs> you know, and all, and all of the uh, places where you've got these flags with the Union Jack in the corner, they do feel a bit an- anachronistic these days. Uh, it'd be nice to see people, especially independent nations, pick their own flag. To come all the way back to Mary's point, I still think in terms of branding somewhere, and this is for the outside world, the Bosnian flag is not great. It doesn't say Bosnia and it seems messy from a design perspective. Purely, that, that that's my gut. We should move on. Absolutely. Claire, I've witted on loads. I'm going to take the back seat now. You can drive. You can be Jan Mitchell on this podcast and you can do the driving <laughs> but swerve around the meters but but yeah, tell yeah. us all about what's been happening on the socials well before that we should go to the uh, happy tale of ken's christmas presents oh, when he was crumbs. a lad yeah i've completely for- forgot all about ken can i just say i can listen to ken talk about anything 
What? Oh, God, yeah. What a beautiful delivery this man has. Sorry, Ken, for almost forgetting you. Well, I did forget you, but Claire didn't. Well done, Claire. Here's Ken. This is Ken McDonald. Christmas 75, my mom and I took the bus downtown to find me some very special presents. Some things my mom didn't trust herself to buy on her own. Disembarking at Public Square, this was Cleveland where I grew up. We headed away from the crowds around the department stores, up a flight of stairs in an old office building and into an office where the workers were quite surprised to be receiving holiday shoppers. But I knew from the yellow pages that they did have one thing available for retail purchase. You see, this was a surveying company, and they sold topographic maps from the U.S. Geological Survey. My grandma Gifford had introduced me to USGS topo maps the previous summer on Martha's Vineyard Island, land of my maternal ancestors. I was her youngest grandchild by far, so for a long time she didn't quite know what to make of me an afterthought. Our shared love of maps was perhaps our first real bond. She gave me her complete set of Martha's Vineyard topos, which she knew would be helpful in my woodland wanderings, along with this piece of advice. It's not trespassing if you're on foot. So now at the surveyor's office in downtown Cleveland, I was like a kid in a candy shop. I wound up walking away with the entire grid of Northeast Ohio in a contiguous set of maps rolled up in a cardboard tube, a tube later to be wrapped by my mom and set beneath a tree for me to discover on Christmas Day. Soon I became versed in the visual lingo of these maps, green woods and fields, salmon pink urban zones, little black squares and rectangles for buildings, and of course all those brown contour lines of changing elevation. I used them to plan my youthful adventures from seeking trails to bike and hike through woodlands to finding abandoned buildings to explore, thus propelling me into interests that would continue into my adulthood. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Ken. Ken. Surely you should have given us a little bit of sleigh bells there, Claire. Oh. <laughs> right. Now, can we deal with the socials? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we're now up to 228 members in the Facebook group. So welcome everyone who's joined. We've had a bit of an uptick recently. So that's lovely. Our most commented on map was the one that Robin Pickering posted about how very, very ancient geological impacts in terms of the US uh, landmass can play out in modern times in what the lo- the politics look like because of the way that different types of soil meant different types of agriculture happened and then that links to slavery and that, and that links to kind of long-term political... I suppose it's sort of like an afterlife. And that, you know, had a lot of comments and interaction. And I think it's a really interesting understanding of how place is a very deep rooted thing. And people think about their own history. But at the end of the day, some of that history does relate back to just the very physicality of a place, Mm. what the quality of the soil is like, whether it's high or low ground, whether it's, you know, wet or dry or whatever. And we sort of sometimes forget the elemental nature of some of that uh, and how it impacts even in, you know, centuries and centuries and centuries onward. Mm. It was utterly fascinating, that map. It was brilliant. It utterly blew my mind. Absolutely. Yeah, so we had a few other interesting maps posted. Um, Lonnie posted one of uh, sort of historic New York subway maps. Again, uh, everyone loves transit maps, so uh, we'll, we'll often have one of those. Uh, our friend Ken McDonald uh, posted some articles about the, the movement of Magnetic North following the uh, conversation we had in the last episode. 
And I was particularly taken by Pauline Dawson, who has decorated her walls of a what looks like a more or less covered with the window, but I'm sure it's got some other purpose, uh, with some beautiful maps, actually. The colours of them are, are gorgeous. So uh, absolutely, I one day I do plan to uh, wallpaper an entire wall or possibly a whole room with maps, uh, and that's uh, given me a bit more inspiration. And then sort of a starting point, really, was Guy, Guy Smith posted a picture of a map that he drew when he was 10 years old, <laughs> and... It looked amazing, and there's a whole story to tell there, and we did ask him to call in, so I'm hoping that maybe by next episode we might have some more of the backstory of that. I don't want to go into it too much because I think it would be really great. Guy, if you're listening, give us a call. Tell us all about your map because it sounds amazing. Um, We'd love to see that. And then recently I've been posting a number of uh, Christmas-themed maps, which uh, (laughs) has got people chatting um i particularly enjoyed the one that showed what people's favorite christmas film was uh to see how different parts of this in the u.s different parts of the u.s had different favorites and how some were literally universal and everywhere and others were much more geographically focused so american listeners will have a much better idea about that uh not a huge amount going on on twitter um but we did have a couple of really interesting historical maps uh, one from Grey Whiskers around uh, a very early 20th century map of Germany, Poland and Czechoslovakia, you know, just before it all went horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and um, and Catherine Rowan-Jones, friend of, friend of the show, uh, who always has some interesting and unusual maps to post, uh, sent us a picture of uh, some 16th century maps of Shrewsbury. And again, some of these ancient maps are such beautiful works of art Mm. um the 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 scale and the kind of geometry of it sometimes feels a little bit skewish but uh they are always beautiful um objects in their own right so that's always a joy thank you Catherine. and that's it for the socials have you got your map fact of the month I have got a map fact of the month, indeed. Just a very quick line from this amazing kind of illustrated essay that we were sent by Michael Pearmain by email a few weeks ago. So the map fact of the month is that the way that the UK looks on maps was effectively decided in 1935 by a committee. What? Uh, with <laughs> with an MP, the MP for Hemel Hempstead, John Day, Sir John Davison, was the chair of the committee, and they they were the ones who determined that the centre of the UK, the line on which everything else will be related to, the, the kind of the central meridian, mm. would be two degrees west. And it never occurred to me before that this was even a thing, actually. But um, of course, it doesn't make any sense to map the UK by the Greenwich Meridian because it's far too far east and the rest of the country mainly hangs to the west of there. Mm-hmm. And um, it distorts all the rest of the the way that it would look if you uh, if you mapped it. So, so I hadn't really thought about it in that way before, but uh, now I see it on a big sort of picture, it looks so obvious that that's the spine of the country. Yeah, so I, the, Michael says a lot more about this, but I'm going to save that perhaps for a future time. But so I'm just going to pick that that it, it was uh, the maps. All the maps of the UK were a little bit different from each other up until uh, 1935, when a committee decided where the central line was going to be. Uh, and it seems so unchanging and obvious now, but actually, it's really quite a recent thing. Gosh, 
Ooh, I probably learned some up there. All right. So in next month's show, we'd love you to call in and tell us about the first maps you remember. They might be the first map you ever drew, like uh, Guy Smith, who's posted his to Facebook, or it might be a map you saw early on in your life or of a place that was really special. So it'd be really good to hear people's stories uh, about their first map memories. And how exactly do they get those calls into us, Claire? Oh, well, if you go to www. Oh, no, it's not www, isn't it? Oh, well, if you go to mapcorner.space. <laughs> you got a touch of the Roy fields there. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's quarter past 11. I've been up since six. Okay. If you go to mapcorner.space and look on the right-hand side, there's a little red tab called SpeakPipe, and you will get two minutes to tell us your story. Fabola. What have you learned yeah. on this month's episode, Arclair? I have uh, learned um, some things about St. Nicholas that I didn't know already. Mm-hmm. And I have learned that you shouldn't send 15-year-olds in the air uh, <laughs> without any licensing rules. <laughs> Right, smashing. Um, <laughs> just before we go, uh, what are you hoping that Santa's going to bring you this year? Oh, gosh. Um, I Well, I'm just looking forward to spending some time with family. I know that's really kind of, you know, schmaltzy, but that's true. And I think it's, uh, you know, we appreciate the time that we spend and sometimes we, we only get together at Christmas and, you know, it's all the more reason to make the most of it. Oh, me too. Utterly concur with what you just said there. Uh, my kids are... One of them's coming up on the train from London and then two of them are flying in from, from Toronto. So uh, there'll be a big brown Christmas in Birmingham this year. And that's all I want to do is just be with my kith and kin. So hopefully, uh, dear listener, you'll have a similarly warm and cuddly Christmas with your kith and kin. Uh, season's greetings to you and uh, goodbye from me. And goodbye to me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.